Genesis chapter 45, in our text this morning, the scripture reading was on the Lord reconciling us to himself, and we see here, Joseph's brothers reconciled. What a beautiful word that is. You don't have to reconcile uh, in, uh, friends, do you? But you do have to reconcile enemies. There must be a, a basis for that reconciliation. And here we've seen Joseph being used of the Lord to work in his brothers' lives to bring them to a place of complete repentance. And only the Lord can do that. He uses circumstances and people and all kinds of things, but it is his spirit that brings us to that place. And we see here in Genesis chapter 45, in verse 4, And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. Oh, what a precious picture this is. You can sense the emotion in that room, those trembling brothers who had done him such sin against him. And he said, can you imagine hearing these words after 20 plus years? I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. He does not make their crime any less than what it was, does he? Can you imagine selling your brother as a slave? Oh, what a crime. What a sin that is. But I want you to know our sins were just as devastating, just as despicable, whatever name you want to put on them. I am Joseph, your brother. Now, therefore, be not grieved. He has not rushed to bring them to that place, has he? In fact, he has sent them back. This is the third time they've come before him. So the full revelation of what they have done, and the Lord's provision in their lives could be shown. Be not therefore grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither. Can you imagine every time he mentioned that, the pain that went through their hearts? For God did send me before you to preserve life. A very clear example of one who has seen the circumstances in life he sees the grace of God the Romans 8:28 that we know all things work together for good to them who love the Lord Joseph knew that verse before it was ever penned by the apostle Paul he knew the teaching of that verse that God had intervened in the midst of these circumstances and did send me before you to preserve life they have only a limited knowledge of what that means they they no doubt think of it in the limited sense of themselves and their children for this period of time but we know this is the entrance of 300 plus years that God will preserve his children the children of Israel in the land of Egypt and he used these circumstances to get them there for these two years hath the famine been in the land and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest God has sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. You see the prophecy in Joseph's words to them. There's going, they're going to come out one day by great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. Oh, what a verse. Not you that sent me here, although they did sell him into bondage and cause him to be a slave in Egypt. It was not you. Ultimately, it was the Lord. And I hope that God's grace and His Spirit can show us that in our lives, your life, my life today, 
the things that he has allowed, the circumstances that have brought us to this very hour. It is not you, but God. So often we put a face to our pain. We, put, we assign someone to it. But Joseph didn't see the faces of his ten brothers who brought him there. He saw the graciousness of God in the face of a loving heavenly Father who loved so much to wound, if need be, to bring them all to where they must be. But God. Those two words, those two simple words, but God. That is the source of all reconciliation. For if God had not intervened, if Christ the Savior had not come, we would still be yet in our sins and not reconciled to God. But God. Say that with me. But God makes all the difference in the world. To Pharaoh and the Lord of all of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt, haste ye and go up to my father and say to him, Thus saith thy son Joseph, God hath made me a lord of all Egypt. Come down unto me, tarry not. Can you imagine when Jacob heard those words that his son had made, been made much more than the head of the family business? He was a ruler in Egypt. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen. Thou shalt be near unto me. Thou and thy children, your children's children, and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast. He's prophesying they're going to be there not just for five years, but uh, years and years. And there will I nourish thee. And for yet there are five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou hast come to poverty. And behold, your eyes see... In the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my mouth that speaketh unto you. And you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt, and of all that ye have seen. And ye shall haste and bring down my father hither. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all of his brethren. Oh, what a picture. Joseph kissing. Those brothers who had sold him as a slave. Oh, what a picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. He kissed them, Benjamin and his other brothers. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Why? Benjamin had seen the pain and the grief and the agony of his old father mourning over Joseph all these years. Benjamin wept. Moreover, he kissed all of his brethren and, and wept upon them. Again, we see that he did. And after th that, his brethren talked with him. Oh, what a conversation. Can you imagine what they talked about? I'll tell you this. It was the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the long-suffering of God that had intervened, interposed his precious blood, we sang about this morning, to bring them. To this place. Now, our gracious Heavenly Father, you are all of grace. How precious did that grace appear the hour we first believed. It is not only saving grace, but sustaining grace. You had to give Joseph grace, not only in salvation, but to forgive these brothers who came to him. Oh Lord, how tempting it would have been to have made them suffer and to turn them away. We praise you that as a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, Joseph receiving his brothers, you never turn anyone away. For someone listening this morning wondering, is this for me? Is this Christ? Is this salvation for me? 
You said that you would come unto me, you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. You call the sinner to come. You're here in our midst. You've promised where your people have gathered. There I am in there I am in the midst of them. And so we ask by your spirit to show us these things. And those who are in need of a Savior, may they see the glorious Savior today, we pray. In Jesus' precious name, amen. When the grain and provisions purchased in Egypt were used up, once again, their father sends them back to Joseph for more. The sons convince their father to let them take Benjamin Joseph has demanded so that he might release Simeon, who is being held as collateral. There's an old adage that says, Oh, what tangled webs we weave when first we practice to deceive. And Jacob's sons are tangled up in all kinds of things at this point. They have a brother who is held hostage, an unwilling father to let his youngest son go with him back the Pharaoh's right-hand man demanding that this one come, and uh, they've got to convince their father. Finally, Judah, who had sinned notoriously. We've looked at Judah's life, and obviously the Lord has done a work in his life and is doing a work in his life, and I want you to know that repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is not a completed fact. It is completed as far as our standing before the Lord, but sanctification is an ongoing thing, isn't it? Lessons to be learned and repentance of of new sins and new situations that were not there before. And Judah, who has been such a sinner, who had put forth the idea years ago to sell Joseph as a slave, has become, we see this time, as the family spokesman and negotiator. There seems to be a complete radical change in Judah. He promises his father that he will stand surety for Benjamin. And if he didn't bring Benjamin back alive and well, that he would bear the blame forever. And so they took double money back, along with money that was brought back with them as the plot for Joseph, from, from Joseph planting it in their sacks, along with presents for Joseph. There were resources yet in Canaan, even when all the other nations on earth had nothing. Canaan still had some resources and spices and things. And the Bible tells us their father says, take him these things. There were things that not even the king of Egypt would have had. And so they take those things to sweeten the deal, if you will, those presents, spices and things that represented Canaan that they had stored. And they take Benjamin. Joseph provided a feast for his unwitting brothers. And the men were very afraid. They, they don't feel at ease. They don't know all the details, but they know that something is not right. They don't know that how much is known. And surely Joseph could not be alive, could he? And I don't think they had any idea that this man was Joseph, but there was an eeriness about the whole thing, the way he was treating them. He knew too much. How did he know, for example, which one was the oldest, what the birth order was? And his steward knew who to go to and who to put what in what sack. You see... The Holy Spirit reveals these things. And of course, Joseph being a type of Christ and, and all the abilities that we see here, the story unfolds. And even these, these men knew there were too many things to just explain away. Joseph invites them into his own personal apartments. 
Now, that's, that's saying something, isn't it? They were not just in a court or in an outer place. They were invited into the very apartments of, of Joseph. And after he receives them, he releases Simeon. But, but Joseph has one more test for his brothers, designed both to bring them to absolute and total repentance and to get his elderly father to Egypt. Oh, what things the Lord does in our lives. When you look back over your testimony, those of you who know the Lord savingly, oh, the threads that He wove by His care and providence. When you would have taken over the loom, you would have made an absolute mess out of the tapestry of your lives. But oh, how He works. How, how tirelessly He works in the, in the dark times, when the bad circumstances, and, and even when we're not thinking that God is at work or don't even care if He's at work, we see Him tirelessly weaving the, the threads of our lives into a glorious tapestry of grace and mercy. He tells His chief steward to fill their sacks with the needed supplies, along with their money, and to put Joseph's own royal silver cup in Benjamin's sack. Now, to someone who does not see the whole picture, that seems somewhat cruel. But Joseph must bring his brothers to the full realization of all that they've done, and that God has overridden and overseen and intervened on their behalf, and, and to point them to him. The, the silver cup was more than just a cup that, that he drank from, from the the royal service there, but to the Egyptians, the silver cup was used as, in a way like a Ouija board or in divination. They would put precious stones and other pieces of gold in the cup and fill it with some lager or some kind of liquid and, and slosh it around to somehow or another with the, the demon spirits and all and call on their, their incantations to determine the will of the gods. Now, Joseph of course, did not participate in that, but they all knew the importance of the silver cup. It would be like taking one of the vessels from the house of God. And, and when they find that in, in Benjamin's sack, they're going to absolutely be fearful of their lives. This time, uh, he, he holds them hostage. And God's will through his human instrument, Joseph, is twofold. I want us to look how the Lord works, to get Jacob, Israel, to Egypt, where his descendants will live for over 300 years. God has a divine plan. Aren't you glad today that with all the chaos and the foundations are being eroded all around us and we wring our hands figuratively and maybe literally and when we listen to reports and we see things come to pass and that we, we just... Never thought we'd see and, and wonder how, how low the, the, the depths of sin can be reached. When, when we see the Lord at work, it's an amazing thing that God is working from His own timetable and His own sovereign will and not human governments or parliaments or supreme courts or, or economies. None of these things will be able to ultimately thwart the plan of God. He wants to get Jacob to Israel, to, in Israel, to, to Egypt, and secondly, to bring Joseph's brothers to repentance. The ways of the Lord affect not just me or you. I, I think of the Lord's work of grace in my own heart and life and, and how uh, bringing me to Christ and, and that, that 
mark, that wonderful thing that happened in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters and our whole family. And I, I recounted for you before a, a devastating time in our family when we, we moved away from, from home and my father went into business and the business failed. And it seemed that we were absolutely going to be destroyed. But one day when we were thinking about that, my brothers and, and sisters and I, we recounted the fact that if that, all that had not happened, the Lord would not have... Uh, he brought us as a result of all that under the sound of the gospel. And so if bankruptcy is what it took and in a family being displaced and, and shame and all those things that, that might be associated with that, the, 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 the end result is generation after generation now have come, having come into Christ. Isn't that a wonderful and amazing thing? Until the famine came and they were forced to seek help at the only source of help in Egypt. The brothers foolishly had thought, like so many do, that they had sinned and gotten by with it. That their plot to do away with their thorn in the flesh, their brother, selling him into to bondage as a, as a slave, and lying to their father about it, that it would never be found out. The thing about sin, it is so deceitful. And once we begin to think wrongly about it, where the Bible says, be sure... Be sure your sin will find you out. But in our humanity, we think if it is not today or this year or this decade, that perhaps it will be forgotten by all. Unresolved deeds, things that should be made righted. And the times pass, two decades pass, and I'm sure in, in a way the, the guys they were constantly reminded of their father's grief. There was never a day that passed that he did not speak of, of Joseph and and the horror that, that happened to Joseph. And again, you remember they lied about it and said he was destroyed and torn by a wild animal. But we saw last time that, that J- Jacob had sense enough. He, he, he knew there was more to it than what they were presenting. And that made the grief all the more horrible. It's, it's one thing to lose a son, but to lose a son the way that, that he had been lost. And he knew his other sons were, were guilty and had some part in Joseph's demise. But when Satan prompted and tempted Eve to sin in the garden, he told her what? You shall not surely die. She ate of the fruit, and and guess what? She didn't drop dead, did she? Oh, she died spiritually, and she knew there was a transformation that she could not explain. Her relationship with Adam became more complex He became tired and working. There were some immediate results of that disobedience, but they did not die. And somehow that lie of Satan began to be truth to them to some degree that we will not die after all, whatever that means. The deceitfulness of sin is that we can get by with it. The the sinner who has decided there is nothing to the gospel, there's no savior uh, they don't want to have anything to do with that, or that's just for hypocrites and all that, foolishly think that they can just turn away from all that and that it, it will go away. And that because they've decided it's not true, that they can erase the, the record of God demand and, and that they'll not be responsible to a judge one day. But our scripture reading this morning reminds us you, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. There's not a person alive that will not stand before the Lord and give an account. It is appointed unto man once to die. But that's not all. That's half a verse. 
It is appointed unto man. God has put it in on the calendar of time. It is appointed to man once to die. We're all just biding our time. We have been to the cemetery this week. There are dear ones in our church here in the last few weeks who have buried loved ones. But every time we go to a memorial service and we see a casket, we're all reminded, there go I. My day is coming. I'm just on, on borrowed time. I have no idea when my time will come up. But it is appointed. It is appointed. God has appointed a time that Chris Lamb will breathe his last, last breath and go out into eternity. It is appointed. I cannot counsel that appointment. I cannot... Uh, make it some other time. I cannot redo it. It is appointed to man once to die. But that's not all. And after this, I will stand before the Lord. And you will stand before the Lord. We see here in chapter 44, verse 15, he asked them, what deed is this that you have done? The Holy Spirit must bring a sinner to see his sin. We live in a society where we call it everything but that. In fact, sin is such a quaint and old-fashioned and looked down upon word, the majority of society does not believe that that word has validation. They, they attach other names and descriptions to it, but, but not sin. It's interesting that sin is not considered sin unless I've been sinned against. I'm speaking editorially here. And then it becomes wrong. It becomes a grievous sin. What deed is this that you have done? This is the place that the Spirit of God must bring every person to. What have we done? They could forget it. They could, time could pass by. But what happened to Joseph was a crime not only against Joseph and against their father, which is very grievous, but against a holy, thrice holy, eternal creator God in heaven, the judge of all the earth. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring us to that place. And I would submit to you this morning, if while this word of the Lord is going forth, you begin to think about your own heart, and your own life, and your own sin. Society and education and psychology tells you to look away from those things, Don't focus on those things. But interestingly, the Holy Spirit does a prying work. And he uses the the, the tools of the, the Word of God, the scapel of God's Word, to pierce and divide even the joints and the marrow and the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And he lays that open for us to see. I cannot do that. My preaching cannot do that. My counseling cannot do that. But the Spirit of God and the Word of God are so welded together that the Holy Spirit of God takes the tool of the Word of God to do surgery on the soul. You have a body that can be operated upon, and we praise God for medicine and technology, but who can operate on the mind? Who can tell the difference between the thoughts and the intents of the heart? Who can bring a person to see themselves as the Creator sees themselves? Only the Spirit of God. And the mirror is God's holy word. He uses His law to do so, His word. 
This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart that brings sinners, sinners to repentance. Now, I want to warn us this morning as we look at this matter of reconciliation and we see the record of Joseph's brothers being reconciled to him. There is such a thing as incomplete repentance. It falls short. It stops just short of. The writer of the book of Hebrews warns his listeners who had heard the gospel, who had come to the Christian assemblies and enjoyed the praises and the reading of scriptures and the prophecies and all that the Lord was doing. He said earnestly, he he urged them and he uses those words of the Spirit, let us go on to completion. Don't stop short of fully repenting and believing and resting on Jesus Christ for salvation in Him alone. There is an incomplete repentance. And how sad it is for people to have heard and to have been enlightened and to have tasted, as it were, the, the, the Scripture uses those words, tasted the very things of God as you may have done this morning, and yet come short of full repentance. Religious deeds and songs and singing and even outward worship is not proof of complete repentance. There is an incomplete repentance which involves sorrow, yes, but falls short of godly sorrow. There's a human sorrow and a godly sorrow. Incomplete repentance brings fear, but not the fear of the Lord whose eyes are open, that sees all things and knows all things and keeps a record of all things. It is the fear of man. One way of examining your repentance to see if it's complete Let me ask you a simple question that we should ask ourselves. Do I fear more of what my wife or husband or parents or my fellow church members or brothers and sisters or the pastor would think of me about this or do I fear the holy God of heaven who knows and sees all? You see, the fear of man, the scripture tells us, brings a snare. It is a trap that entangles us on our path to full repentance, to stop there, to make us look right and look good in the eyes of other people, and perhaps even going through religious professions or rites or deeds and joining with God's people, all those things that the writer of Hebrews warns his readers, and yet fall short. That's a tragic thing, isn't it? To come to the door, as Judah did, Judas did, and and kissed the door of salvation. Christ said, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. One of the most tragic pictures in all the Bible is Judas kissing the door and turning aside and going into utter and eternal darkness. Incomplete repentance produces a fear, but it's a human fear, a fear of man, a fear of being found out, the fear of losing face or position or relationships or possessions, the fear of of temporal punishment or deprivation, but stop short of grieving over the eternal consequences, the the horror of offending a a holy spirit and and a perfect God. The offender still wants to be in control and to be able to call the shots. The the Apostle Paul writes 
to the, the Corinthian church about the danger of an, an incomplete repentance and a human sorrow that stops short of a godly sorrow, let me just say it's not just indicative of tears and outward mourning. There may be genuine repentance without very much of that at all. And there may be an incomplete repentance with all kinds of tears and groanings. We're not to attach the emotion to it, but this is a heart matter before the Lord. And truly, only the Lord can truly know. But godly sorrow. There's an eternity of difference between human sorrow and incomplete repentance and godly sorrow and true biblical repentance. What is it, Pastor? What would that look like? It is a total submission to the will and the word of God. When Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, they do not offer excuse, do they? They didn't argue back. You shouldn't have been in that place. It was not our fault. Our father brought that to pass. He calls it to be like that. You, you, you were wrong in lording yourself over us and bragging about your dreams. All those things in a human perspective they could have brought up, but they were absolutely silenced. None of those things mattered at this point, did they? It, it was immaterial about whether uh, Jacob should have put Joseph over them or, or all how that panned out or his telling them his dreams. When a person has been brought to full repentance, they see God as he is and his word as absolute truth and ourself there in the glowing, radiant light of his holiness and his truth. It is an owning up to all that has been done by the offender without excuses. These, these guys give no excuse, no justification whatsoever for what they did to Joseph. They could have even pointed out the fact, but, but you didn't die. You see, we didn't kill you. We, we allowed you to be sold into slavery and, and here you are. Look how well you've done. They could have even turned the tables. Have you not seen people do that sometime and make their sin into some kind of thing that you ought to be thankful for what they had done? Psalm 51 gives vivid portrayal of it. And you do not have to turn there, but I would like for you to, in your own private time before the Lord, to trace David's prayer. The Holy Spirit has recorded it for us because we will find ourselves before Christ and even after our salvation with a need to pray the prayer of David in Psalm 51. Our sins may not be duplicate of his, but the need to be made right with God. What a vivid picture for us to see when David, by the man of God and the word of God, has been brought to a place where he sees himself as he really is. At first, it's a horror, isn't it? When first we look into our heart and mind and see the depths of our sin, how far we've gone. Don't you know when those men saw Joseph, their brother, and all the regal robes, the beauty of that place, the, 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 the position that he had, how incredulous all that was, that God had spared him. They fully thought he probably was dead by now. And when they saw that, that God had spared him and how he'd intervened, don't you know the glaring truth when they, when they saw what they had done? They were, they were absolutely unable to, to, to say anything to Joseph. When Nathan came to King David and after a year of silence, David was out of fellowship for a full year. 
He could not execute his duties as king and settle cases. Don't you know when someone brought a property case before David, what, what did he do with that? We'll table that for a while. I'll put that on the side. I, won't, I don't want to hear anything. When, he brought, when the cases came before him that, that needed to be heard, David could not face them. And so that's a way that many people deal with those things. I just won't think about it. I mean, I may have done wrong. It may be bad. It may be against God's word. It may be horrible. But I'm just not going to think about it. After all, everybody's a sinner and everybody's done wrong. And I'm not the only one. And, and so David probably, like so many of us, just filed it away. But that filing cabinet came back open, didn't it? And one day the file just fell out before him and all the gory facts were there. David, you're the man. The Lord so graciously records for us David's prayer of repentance. I acknowledge my transgressions. I own up to what I did. I did it. And my sin is ever before me. It gets more specific than that. Notice in David's prayer, he does not say, if you feel like I have wronged you, which is so many of the apologies we hear today. I'm sorry that you were offended by what I did, Joseph. I know you felt you may be offended by being sold as a slave, but I didn't really mean it personal. We just wanted to get you out of the way. There's no justification here, no excuses against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil. In thy sight, that thou might be justified when you speak and be clear when you judge. You desire truth, David tells God, in the inward parts, in the heart, in the mind, and the soul. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me, wash me, make me, hear me. We see all those requests that David comes before the Lord. Hide your face from my sins. He has not done so, even though we may have hidden our face from them. And used all kinds of mechanisms to, to uh, cause the, the soul to be jaded. But who knows, just the circumstance, just the doctor's announcement, just the order of events that jostles all that open, in 20 years can come crashing down around us. And there it is all before us. In Genesis 44, from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, we have the longest speech by a human in the whole book of Genesis. It's Judah speaking. We've noted how he's become the spokesman of the family. And I've often wondered when reading, and we've been in this journey here for over two years, the book of Genesis. I've often wondered why the Lord gives so much attention to some portions, verse after verse, to Judah's speech, for example, in just a few words to in the beginning that God created the heavens and earth, period. There, there it is. I did it. You couldn't figure it out if I gave you any more information. Let there be light, and there was light. And the human mind wants to know all kinds of other things. But God said, there it is. The sun rises, I put it there. You're alive, I gave you life and there it is period but but here he gives the speech of a brother who is pleading before the judgment seat you know why i believe the lord allows these long portions of scripture when we would we would give more importance to things like creation and 
the flood and the Tower of Babel and maybe some other things that we're curious about, the angels and, that left their first estate and all those kinds of things that we sons of men marrying the daughters of you know all that thing that we might want to know about but but here we hear a brother who has wronged his brother standing and and talking and because you know what this is us isn't it this is the human condition there's not a thing we can do about the sun and the earth and the stars that's a fact but now, Chris Lamb, that's something far different. I have to look into my heart and my life, my relationships, my standing before the Lord. Judah takes the lead and shoulders the blame and the responsibility of it all. How noble it is. He speaks for all of him, and he blames himself. Do you see what complete repentance looks like? I would have blamed my two brothers, Bill and Mike, if I'd been there. We had enough blame to go around in our, our doings, I'll tell you. Mike's the oldest, it's his fault. Bill hit me, that's why I hit Mike, and that's why we broke the window, you know. We had those kind of explanations. But Judah stands and says, I take, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, here. He takes the blame of it all. Joseph is a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're reminded soberly in Romans 14, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, Why will we stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Because God wrote it. And whatever he has written will come to pass. Though all of the human race vote against it tomorrow, there is a judgment day coming because it is written, period. For it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me. Shouldn't they? Shouldn't every knee bow to Jesus Christ? Shouldn't every tongue confess that He's Lord of creation, Lord of heaven and earth? Shouldn't every tongue confess there is a God in heaven who sent His Son to live and die for us and who has, whose Spirit is with us yet, leading and guiding and teaching us? Shouldn't that happen? It will happen. So then, because the Bible has written it, and it will happen, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. I mentioned my anniversary. and Every wedding I perform, I often charge, and I do charge the groom that his, one of his duties is to so live and to so help his wife live to give a good account in this day. I have a million failures, but I've always lived with the pressing thought that as the husband of Kathy and the father and now the grandfather of these, that, that a great responsibility was on my shoulders to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ and never be a stumbling block in their journey to repentance and faith and then in their living for him. And they could tell you, I've not done that perfectly but every day that awareness comes to my heart and mind as I come before the Lord and intervene on their behalf that I cannot personally answer for Kathy in the day of judgment or LeGrand or Leah or those precious grandchildren I will not be able to stand in their stead I will have to give an account for Chris Lamb myself and yet my influence my providing the 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 
atmosphere and the, the, the relationships with them in such a way to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ is always very heavy upon my heart. Every one of us shall give account of himself. I do not know where you stand today with your relationship with the Lord. But I do know this, that you must answer to him. And I would be remiss if I didn't say in the scripture reading that says we, we cry, be you reconciled to God. I, I beg you to be reconciled with God and only you can answer that question. What, how do you stand before him? What is your standing? If you were to be ushered into that place of standing before him today, what basis would you plead to be led into heaven? What would you point to as the grounds for your admission into a holy place where sin has never come? What, what, what reason would you give that, that God, the holy and perfect God of the universe, the judge of all the earth, why should he let you into heaven? That's a, a, a heavy thought, isn't it? And there's only one answer. The songwriter says it best. Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. God will allow folks into heaven to put it very simply only because of one reason. What they did with Jesus. Remember last week we saw that, that Jacob said go to Israel. And Pharaoh said, Go to Joseph. He has all that you need. We point you to a greater than Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. His resources will not run out in seven years or seven thousand years or seven trillion years. What he gives, he gives lavishly and will stand the test of time. When you come to him with your sin and fully own up to it and fully. Pour yourself out on his mercy. He removes that sin. He reconciles you with the Father. Isn't it a marvelous thing? He who knew no sin for us became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The the gifts that God gives those who come to him on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ are eternal. Joseph's brothers never considered judgment day. And tragically, most people never do. If they get by, if they can console themselves, if they can can console their conscience, if they can pour themselves into a career or living life or into a relationship or to enjoyments, they can numb that, that conscience that God has given to every person and somehow think, well, I don't, they may be all worked up about it down at the church, but that's just not for me and I can, I can get by here like this. But I want you to know that as a pastor, I've sat at the bedside of too many people who live their lives. And I have countless times been at the bedside of someone who crossed over to the other side. And your career will mean nothing at that point. Do you know? Your accomplishments will be absolutely inconsequential. What priceless art you may have on your walls 
You won't ask them to bring it till you let you look at it. Your co-workers, you won't ask to, to them to be reminded, you know, to bring them and let them be reminded of your great deeds. And None of that will matter. Take my word for it. It will offer no consolation when you're breathing your last breaths. You'll remember the words of Scripture. It is appointed a man once to die. And after this, the judgment. They never thought about that. They never thought that they'd be a facing face-to-face with Joseph again. That just never crossed their mind. Out of mind, out of sight, out of mind, sold into bondage. He's somewhere over there somewhere. At least he's not in our face, in our business. We can live our lives the way we want to. They never, ever considered having to face Joseph again. And some people never consider having to stand face-to-face with Jesus Christ. They never think about it. They either don't think it's going to happen or it's, it's, uh, somehow they can, can reason themselves out that it's not going to be quite like this. The one who has final say-so of whether we live or die. Fear not him which can destroy the body, but him that can destroy both the body and the soul. The passing of 20 years did not remove or lessen their crimes. Their Their great poverty and their pitiful condition at this point does not take away what they did, does it? They they had to own up to their sin. And when they come before Joseph initially back in chapter 42, verse 9, they come very self-righteously, as we all do. It's It's a human thing that we do to point to, I'm not as bad as you think I am. I'm not as bad as you ought to see my my neighbor. I know somebody at work who's much worse than I am. We always justify it. And and there are people at church who are despicable who live double lives. And we, we can point to all kinds of things. But when Joseph accuses them of being spies, of, of coming to Egypt under false pretenses, you know what their, their response was? No, my Lord. Very humble, very, very spiritual. No, my Lord. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. We are good men. That's what people say when they're presented with the claims of Christ. And the, these facts that I've laid out before us today, I'm a good person. I'm good. No, Lord, we're, we're true men. What we said is true. In other words, they were claiming to be honest and righteous and without any secrets. And here they were talking to the one who knew everything about them. There's one in our midst today who knows everything about us. And today he is a, a loving Savior who, with arms outstretched, is beckoning you to come and be made right with him, to be reconciled to him. But one day those nail-pierced hands will be used to pronounce final judgment against your soul. Here in chapter 45, things are different. Three times Joseph's brothers come before him and bow to their faces. Just bowing before Joseph didn't mean they were repentant, but finally at this last time they, they see things as they really are. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not just to make us feel better. It's not just to, to straighten out the mess that we're in. There's some who might be hearing and think, well, I need this because I'm, 
if I don't do straighten up, my wife's going to leave me and my, my job is at stake and, and they, there's a mess going on and so we want a gospel that just straightens out the mess or a relationship with somebody, you can call him Jesus Christ or whatever, to make me feel better about this wretched mess that I'm in. It's not just to straighten out the mess we're in or to put us in a better place or a clearer frame of mind. We must be reconciled to God. Joseph's brothers, like all sinners, had to be brought to a place of spiritual desperation and bankruptcy. They had to be brought to the end of themselves. All the props are knocked out. All the excuses are knocked out from under them. I am Joseph, your brother. And the Holy Spirit is pointing to Jesus Christ today. and He's saying, I am Jesus, your Savior. Nothing is hidden before him with whom we have to do. God works tirelessly and patiently, even years, to bring people to repentance. It's amazing, isn't it? Joseph's steward represents the Holy Spirit when he, he went after them. He said, go get them and bring them here. Praise the Lord that the Holy Spirit is always at work where God's gospel is being preached. And I never rise from that seat that I don't remind myself and remind the Lord it is your spirit that will make all the difference today. It is your spirit that will go after the heart and the soul and show people as they really are and bring them to the Savior. I can't do that. It's only the Holy Spirit that can bring us to a true repentance. We see Judah's response in the picture of the true contrition. What shall we say unto my Lord? What, What can we say? There's someone thinking that today. Preacher, what you said is true. I'm brought to that place. What do I do? What can I say? What shall we, he speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? What a question. Judah says, how can we clear ourselves? Chapter 44, verse 16. And so we close with that question this morning. Preacher, how can I clear myself? If you've been brought to that place where you see you need things cleared, your standing before the Lord is not what you thought it was, or for the first time you've been brought to a place where you understand it, you see it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, by the way. You need a Savior. How can I clear myself? They give up all attempts to justify themselves and and take the place of guilty and, and the rightly condemned. Joseph said to his brethren in verse 4 of chapter 45, Come near to me. How precious that word is. Come near to me. Come near to me. The Bible says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Come now, he's saying. Let us reason together. What is it? You're a sinner and I'm sinless, but let us reason about it. Though your sins be as scarlet, you couldn't more make that pew in front of you white like snow with all the dying in the world. Red is the hardest color to get out of of material. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If ye be willing and obedient, 
You shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. But praise his name on the authority of God's word, not because I said it. He still says, come now, let us reason together. I must warn you, if you refuse his invitation to come, there is no other recourse. If we fail the grace of God, if we fall short of the grace of God that's so freely offered in Jesus Christ, there is no other grace. There is no other chance after this life. There's no other recourse. There's no, there's no plan B. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Or nothing. There's not some other religion. There's not some other way. There's one truth. And it is Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. But today the door is open and he's the door. And if you come to him, you will be accepted. What are the conditions? You come just as you are. To him as he is. Confessing your need of him. And your guilt of your sin. And you believing that he is the Savior and that he will save you. It's very uncomplicated. You may be in a complicated mess this morning, but Jesus Christ is not complicated. His gospel is simple. You need a Savior, and He's the Savior, and you're to come to Him. We point you to Jesus Christ. Again, as Jacob said, we say, go to Joseph. Go to Jesus. He is a friend that's well known, we used to sing. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. You won't find one like him who knows all about you. He's exposed it to you today. Though the eyes of this room will never see what is being discussed here. Jesus Christ has shown it to you. And if you'll come to him, he'll cleanse it away. And give you his own righteousness. So that when God sees you, he sees you as his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a gift. What a Savior. Praise His name. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we come very humbly today in this hour and ask that You take Your Word and to help every heart, everyone in this room and who will hear this Word to understand their need of the Savior, their need to be reconciled, and that they can come just now where they are, Lord. They don't have to jump through hoops or join something or, or sell something or figure it out. Lord, your word is so precious. It says to as many as received you, to them that you gave the power to become the sons of God, that, that coming and receiving, and I pray they would come just now in their heart and just cry out to you by faith. Take me, save me, make me your own. Lord, you're a wonderful Savior. You're a mighty to save. We ask in the stillness of this hour that the Holy Spirit would do His work and reveal to each heart their need, their condition, and give the assurance of sins forgiven to those who come in faith believing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.